So, I get to start a new series this week entitled My Big Fat Mouth. And that sounds really appealing, doesn't it? Yeah, it gets better from here. But let's be honest, when we think about our mouths, I mean, how many of us have occasionally, maybe once or twice, had our mouths get us into a little bit of trouble? You know, you don't have to put, well, you can put your hand up. I can put both hands up because, yeah, our mouths are, are, in, are incredible tools, aren't they? They can be used to convey truth and love, but they can also be used to destroy, to tear down, to do all of these horrible and terrible things. And perhaps in our lives, we've used our lives to, or use our mouths to build folks up, to encourage, to edify, or perhaps, perhaps we've used our mouths to, to gossip or to lie, to tear someone down, to perhaps be critical. And if you've ever done any of those things, just know this, to do any of these things is natural, right? To do any of these things is natural because on our own, left to our own devices, we do what comes to to us naturally. And naturally, that's kind of what we do as human beings. We, We lie, we manipulate, we use our mouths for sometimes great things and sometimes terrible things. Today, I get to talk about communicating with each other. Now, for some of us, talking to another person is the greatest thing in the world, right? My wife is laughing because that's her. She loves good conversations, in-depth conversations where you can sit across from the table, eye-to-eye, riveted, talking about Chinese culture or something else that's completely ridiculous. For the rest of us who are right, Conversations like, what do we got to get done, right? This is like hanging me up on my toenails, you know. Can we just kind of hurry this along? Now, no matter where we fall on that spectrum, the reality is, is like we live with other people, right? Like there's other people around. Very few of us live inside of a rock or a cave or anything like that. So interacting with folks is just something that we have to do. And these interactions sometimes can be really positive and sometimes they can be really challenging, right? Whether you're here in the room tonight or whether you're watching online, we can all agree that we've had a couple of times, probably even maybe a few recently, where we've started to talk with somebody and we went, this is going to be challenging, you know? We might even love the person, but maybe the topic was such that we knew it was going to kind of go down that road, or maybe we were just going to, we knew we had to convey an important truth. And what do we do in those moments? What do we do? When that feeling kind of starts in the pit of our stomach, naturally, we may lie. Not like a whopper, but we might just be like, well, I'm just going to smooth this over a little bit and tell a little bit of a lie, right? Or we might start to compare and say, well, at least you're not like that person, right? It's okay. You're not like that person. As long as you're not like that, then it's okay. Or this is always very, very prevalent and very popular in the culture in which we live. We say nothing. We go, which we all know means we're just agreeing, right? Like when we say nothing, you just kind of sit there and go, oh, it's like, you know they think you're agreeing with them. And we do these things naturally. We might not even think about it. For some of us, it might just be as natural as breathing. And that's because for some of us, me included, there's times where you're thinking, maybe just better to let this whole thing kind of blow over. 
So why are we talking about our mouths? Why are we talking about what we say and how we say it and how we interact? It's because we do it all the time. In fact, has anyone not communicated with someone today? No. Unless you're in like an isolation bubble today, you probably talk to someone about something. If not today, then tomorrow. And you would think, with as much communication as we do, like we kind of understand it, but we don't. We don't. Depending upon like which model you look at or who you're studying or what you're reading, there's different levels and layers of communication. Just think about this. Think about a conversation between you and another person, me and another person, just a two-person conversation, right? And how does the conversation start? Well, there's what you want to say. There's the intent, right? We all start with intent. Most of us usually start with good intent. And then it travels to our mouths, and then we utter words. Now, have any of you ever had a breakdown between A and B? There's what I want to say, there's this intent, and then these words just kind of come out of my mouth. You're like, oh, that's not what I meant to say at all. And then think about this. The words kind of fly through the air at the speed of sound, in case you were wondering, and then they land upon that other person who then has to hear them interpret them and understand them in a whole list of different contexts, right? There's verbal cues. There's nonverbal cues. There's the setting. There's me saying to you tonight, hey, please have a seat. And then there's my kid in the back of the car standing up without a seatbelt. Hey, have a seat. Same words, different context. Be interpreted totally different ways. It's no wonder then that then that person has to receive it and internalize it and respond. Oh my gosh, it's just exhausting. How can you enjoy having good conversation? You know? We don't understand, but yet we do it so naturally because we're just so used to it. And throw on top of all of it our proclivity to kind of, you know, sometimes want to smooth things over or make ourselves feel good or maybe make ourselves look a little bit better. And man, our mouths, boy, they can get us into trouble pretty quick. In the same way that they can build up and encourage, boy, they can destroy pretty quickly. James, in the gospel, that's, or the, or the book of the Bible that's named after him, the book of James, points to this, and he talks about it in James chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. I want to read it briefly tonight. It says this, In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire, it's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It's restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. Well, that really sets the stage, doesn't it? And here's the deal. Like, we know James is right. We know he's right because all of us at some point have said something that we really regretted. Or we've had something said to us and, boy, did that sting it stings. Words are hard. 
And that's going to lead us to our take-home point for tonight. Oftentimes, we want to get free from this, but we can't quite figure out how. And our take-home point is the one point I seek to make from Scripture, and it quite simply is this. When we lie and compare, we live according to our old selves. Our next step will point us towards our new selves, but when we lie and compare, we live according to our old selves. The old selves refers to the way that we live naturally, right? Like, I don't have to tell my kids or teach my kids to be selfish. They're naturally selfish. Put a toy between them, right? We're all that way. Naturally, this is what we do. Lying is defined as to make an untrue statement with intent to deceive, to create a false or misleading impression, something that misleads or deceives is something that we just do. No one has to teach us how to do that. It comes naturally. By the same, in the same vein, when we compare, basically when we look at someone or someone else or something else and we make a comparison, it's what we do naturally. It's how we view ourselves as compared to another. And as our friends at SEAPC remind us, comparison leads to condemnation. Because we either condemn ourselves, right? Well, we're not as good as that person, or we condemn that person. At least I'm not as bad as them. Criticism, critical spirit, all of those things always start when we compare, and it always leads to condemnation. And we have to consider, like, why are we like this? You're like, this is an uplifting message. I'm telling you, it gets better. Why are we like this? Well, if it makes you feel any better, we've been like this for a very long time. The book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, tells how by the third chapter, we're not even that far into the book, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and is like, hey, did God really tell you? And begins to spread deception, which are lies, which ultimately lead to Adam and Eve eating the fruit, and they get kicked out of the garden. The next chapter, Adam and Eve have a couple of kids. It's a beautiful family, mom, dad, two boys, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel grow up. Now they're living with sin, but things are looking okay. But within a few sentences, Cain starts to compare himself to Abel and goes, I'm not as good as Abel. God doesn't favor what I do. He plays the comparison game, kills Abel, then he lies about it. And God's like, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is yes. And Cain goes, I don't know. So within the first couple chapters of the Bible, we have lies, deception, comparison. We've been doing this for a very long time, and we've really honed it down over the years. We're good. When it, again, we oftentimes don't even think about it. To do it, we do it naturally. Thankfully, we don't have to live this way. We don't have to be this way. The Apostle Paul actually points to the truth of this as he wrote a letter to a church in Colossae. The book is called Colossians, and we're going to look at that here this evening. But Paul makes it quite clear throughout this letter that whereas we used to respond naturally, we can respond supernaturally in the power of the Holy Spirit as God changes and transforms us so that how we used to reply is not how we will reply. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, I'd invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 15. The words will also be up here on the screen. But before we do that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. We thank you for the work of your hands. God, I would ask that as we look at your word this evening, that you would speak truth. 
in love to us who desperately need it. You would change and transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In your name, amen. Colossians 3, we're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 4, says this. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So Paul started this passage as he so often did, by encouraging. Encouraging the folks in this this passage, and by extension, us, about focusing on what is true. The reality of Jesus, redeemed and restored, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Paul is so incredible about encouraging these folks because he knows that as they spend time with Jesus, as they would build that relationship with him, their lives would be changed and transformed. The old would pass away, and the new would start to rule and reign. That means the natural would be replaced with a supernatural as we submit to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that their lives would be changed, and by extension, so would ours. So the lies in comparison would be replaced with honesty, transparency, encouragement, unity. Now, this isn't magic. I wish it was. I wish God could just wave a magic wand and the old life would be dead, but that's not the way it works. Paul actually points to that here, but we know that God begins to change and transform us. As Paul said, as we reflect on Jesus, he is then reflected in us, and this is the incredible part. The whole world comes to know Jesus because of what God does in and through us. Think about that. As Jesus changes and transforms us, God is glorified. And as a result, the world comes to know him. That's an incredible promise. And Paul continues to show how that ought to happen. He says in verses 5 through 9, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Paul presents the struggle of every believer. If you know Jesus, you will either have experienced this or you soon will. It's the fact that we want the old life to go away, and we've got to kill it. Paul actually points to this in Romans chapter 7 when he says, who's going to free me from this body of death? Paul's talking about a body of death being his own, the old life, the old man. Watchman Nee in his book, The Normal Christian Life, says the old person is like someone who's unemployed, who's always looking for work. Those are helpful analogies, but I think mine's the most helpful. I think the old life's kind of like a zombie. We're all familiar with zombies, right? We've all seen the old movies. What are zombies? They're things that are dead but not really dead, right? That's the old life. The old life occasionally for me reanimates and it just wants to gnaw and infect every good thing that the Lord has done in my life. Anybody ever experienced that? When you're thinking about, man, 
I had just seen the Lord do this incredible thing. And then that old life, the way that we used to live, comes back. And it wants to destroy everything that the Lord has done. Paul, in this passage, does what he often does and gives an entire list of sins. Paul does that for a number of reasons. I believe it's because, like most human beings, all of us are looking and going, where am I in the list? Right? Am I not in the list? Yeah, you're somewhere in the list. And let's be honest, for most of us, we're at least a couple parts of that list. No one gets off scot-free. When it comes to the old person, the old man, the old woman, we've all experienced it. We know what it looks like. And gosh, we just wish that it would die to go away. And Paul says of all of these things, whether it's sexual morality, lust, anger, malice, filthy language, they're all markers of the old life. And so is lying. But Paul tells us in contrast that we have to put on the new. He says in Colossians 3, verses 10 through 12, Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this life, if you don't, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and He lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So what Paul's saying is it doesn't matter our ethnicity, it doesn't matter our heritage, it doesn't matter our social status, it doesn't, none of those things matter because ultimately we're all screwed up. That's comforting. We're all a little off, some of us more than others. We're all a little off. The only hope we have is Jesus, who Paul says can make us like himself. Think about that. If I could wake up tomorrow and be like Jesus, exactly like him, for like 10 minutes, I'd take that trade every day, right? And Paul's saying, it's possible. It can happen. And we're thinking, in every context of our life, absolutely. But, no, but most pointedly and most notably, as we interact with each other, Regardless of our origins, Paul says that Jesus comes into our lives, restores us, renews us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he changes us to look like himself so that we rule and reign in holiness. Holiness is not a word that we like because holiness implies like, like perfection, and holiness basically sets some pretty strict parameters, and Jesus isn't apologizing about that. But rather, as we live in relationship with Jesus, Paul says the old person dies, and lying dies with it. It goes the way of other things. Why? Why does lying die? Because as we bear the image of God in us, truth and love pours out. So think about this. Why do we lie? Well, we talked about it. We lie for a variety of reasons, but think about it like this. If we're confronted with a challenging situation where we, you know, we used to lie, now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we respond lovingly with truth instead of trying to perhaps just smooth it over. If we find we lie to make ourselves look better, right, or to kind of just bump the ego a little bit, maybe we come to understand what our, even our song said today, that we are who God says we are as his holy children. And our identity doesn't need to be found in anything else 
other than that. Or if we occasionally lie just to save our own skin, maybe we'll stop doing actions where we actually have to have our skin saved. I've been guilty of that one a time or two as well. And that's how Paul can say to us that we would reflect the image of Jesus in all that we think, say, and do. Paul goes on to tell us how we can bring unity, not division. He says this in verses 13 through 15, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. It says in that passage, remember, the Lord forgave you. I think of this often when I'm frustrated with folks who are so stupid and dumb sometimes, of how stupid and dumb I've been and how gracious the Lord has been with me. Remember, the Lord forgave me. He forgave me. There are a few folks in my life who know most everything, but only God knows everything. He even knows what I forgot, which is terrifying. And yet, in light of that, He forgave me. He forgave you. He forgives us all. And He's been infinitely patient. And frankly, thank God He continues to be as we walk out this life. And in that moment, when I'm thinking about how gracious the Lord's been to me, there have been a few times over the past couple years when I've been able to extend a measure of grace that honestly I didn't know I had. Because I think of what the Lord has done and how generous and kind He's been. I've come to recognize, and I think this is pretty important, that a critical heart and a comparing spirit is rarely found in the life of a mature believer. You think of those old saints, those folks that have known Jesus forever. Are they critical? No, they're so happy. How do they get that way? Because the Lord has forgiven so much. And oh, what an image that is for all of us. When we compare, we tear down. And this inhibits us and inhibits our ability to live with the unity that Paul describes. Rather, the Spirit allows us to see one another as we truly are. Creatures created in the image of God, human beings, sons and daughters of His, greatly forgiven because of how He's forgiven each and every one of us, and we're just as much in need of grace as each and every one. Now, within this passage, Paul's talking to believers. Think about that for a minute. Paul's talking about those who know Jesus and how we ought to interact with each other, how we ought to do it in a way that reflects Jesus and His holiness we should do it with unity. We should do it truthfully and honestly. But none of us fully ever interact with those who just know Jesus. We interact with folks who do not yet know Jesus. And that's a slightly different game. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but there have been a handful of times in my life where I've been talking with someone who does not yet know Jesus, and they say something that I say, and I say in my head, I don't agree with that. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It usually happens on Wednesdays for me or any day, but inevitably someone will say something and I go, I don't agree with that. And why don't I agree with it? Because it's not what Jesus would say, or it's not what I hold to be true. And in those moments, what do I want to do naturally? Some folks have said, you know, you really love conflict. That's a lie. 
I hate conflict. There's that feeling in your stomach that you get when you're like, and usually what I want to do is go, and I want to say nothing, which means I agree with them, which is wrong, which is lying because it's deception. There's been other times in my life where I've gone, hmm, I don't necessarily agree with that, and that just always ends in some sort of bomb. Until a few years ago, probably about 15, I was in a training for uh, a program called Alpha. We actually are offering Alpha here at New Life. It's this incredible program for folks who are questioning if they uh, want to come to know Jesus, have questions about the faith. It's a starting point. Alpha's a beginning. And the training that I was receiving was led by the guy who founded the whole program. His name is Nicky Gumbel. And Nikki Gumbel says, as Christians, you ought to interact with folks who don't know Jesus. I said, okay. And he said, and oftentimes, he's British, so he says it very formally. And you're like, oh, it must be important because he's British. So anyways, he was talking and he said, they're going to say something with which you disagree, like I just described to you. And he said, you're going to respond in this way or this way, but here's what you ought to say. That's interesting. Tell me why you believe that. Tell me why you feel that way. And then you engage. You open a conversation. And they may begin to say things that you still don't agree. And to that you say, well, that's interesting. Tell me why you believe that. And you engage. Is this easy? No, it's horribly hard. Because in our culture, we just want to cancel you or tell you that you're dumb or something like that. But that's not what we get to do as believers. We begin to engage. And our hope and our prayer is that over time, that door to conversation opens that we begin to be able to display truth and love. I'll say this, if we're known as nothing else other than to be honest people who live holy lives, who don't compare ourselves to others, that'll be a tremendous testimony in and of itself. But as we walk out what God has called us to do, as we live in His holiness through that relationship with Him, we get to engage with those who do not yet know him. We can't just ignore it. We can't just say we disagree all the time. We engage and we ask meaningful questions. And we, we, we build that relationship. Why? Because think of everyone who built that relationship with us, who helped lead and guide and direct us. Think of how patient the Lord has been with us as we've walked that out as well. And occasionally, we do have to declare truth and love. And there's sometimes disagreement over that, but we ought to do that out of context of relationship. It's not to say that this is easy, but as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and backed by a life that reflects the holiness of God, His love, His unity, some of the best ways we get that we have and we get to share Jesus with a world that desperately needs Him. When we do that, think about this, friends, when we do that, we redeem our tongues, the Lord actually begins to use our mouths for His purpose. When we have interaction, then we are His kingdom agents, and we truly get to encourage and empower those with whom we interact. Why? So that those who do not yet Jesus come to know Him. If you don't know Jesus yet, you get to come to know Him and to encourage those who do not yet know Him to grow to be like Him. We'll build one another up, we encourage one, one another, we move forward in unity, and others will come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. If that's something that we seek to do this week, it's our next step, and I pray that you would live it out with me. It's simply this, I will allow the Holy Spirit to speak truth 
in unity through me this week. This isn't a natural thing. It's not a natural thing. Our natural desire, our natural bent is to do what we already talked about. But supernaturally, it's our hope and our prayer that as the Lord moves in our lives, that he changes and transforms us, that we engage with those who do not yet know him, that we speak truth and love, that we reflect honesty, transparency, compassion, that we build each other up for his kingdom purpose. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you do not yet know Jesus, then much of what I've said may not make sense. But it can. As we come into relationship with Jesus, he renews and transforms us into the image of his son. Or as we come into relationship with God, he renews and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Tonight, we actually have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the whole point of the Lord's Supper is for us to remember what the Lord has done for us, to reflect, to think about all the things that made this relationship possible. Here at New Life, we celebrate what's known as an open table, and that quite simply means that if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. But if you don't yet know Jesus, why not do so tonight? You can come to know him right now. We say here at New Life, it's as simple as A, B, C. Admit, believe, confess. We admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We believe that Jesus is our Savior and Lord, and we confess our sins, and we confess that we need that relationship with Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And if that is you, then I would encourage you that as I pray that you would take that next step to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. Lord, I pray right now for anyone who does not yet know you, whether they be in this room or watching online. Lord, I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you administer to, to hearts. Father, that you can do what only you can do. Prompt, convict, encourage. And Lord, that they would respond by saying words simply something like, Father God, I know that I need you. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of your grace. I believe that Jesus is my Savior and Lord, that he has saved me from sin and death, and that he is the Lord, the owner of my life. And I confess that I need him today and every day into the future. Father, for each of us who do know you, we ask and pray that as we walk out these next steps, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit as well, that you would rule and reign in and through us, so that, Father God, we would reflect your image to a world that is in desperate need of you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.